We are in week 20 of our sermon series called The Story. Second of the last week of the Old Testament, and two Sundays from now, we will be talking about Christmas and the birth of Jesus. And um, so, in this morning's program, you would have received the fourth installment of the Bible reading plan. You'll want to make sure you take that home with you today, so you'll have it um, if you use this paper copy. Of course, you can always follow along with the Bible reading plan on um, the church app or our website, or you can find it on your Facebook or Twitter feed first thing every morning as well. Well, have you ever had to stand up for what you know is right, even when you knew that you'd have to stand alone? Have you ever stood up for your friend in grade school who was getting bullied by other kids just for being different? Have you ever written a letter to an elected official or publicly protested against an injustice that you could no longer stay quiet about. I've often thought about the courage needed to speak out against slavery or the danger of providing a way station on the Underground Railroad, hiding Anne Frank and her family during World War II in an attic in Amsterdam, or saving hundreds of Jews at risk to his own life like Oskar Schindler did in Nazi-occupied Poland. This past week, we read the story of Esther in our Bible reading plan. And this morning, we're going to reflect on her story of courage, opportunity, and influence. I mean, this is the kind of story, isn't it, of which best-selling novels and TV dramas are made for, right? Did you sense that as you read this past week? It has all the elements, drama and intrigue, power, even romance. But the book of Esther is so much more than a story which makes for interesting reading. It is the story of God using the people places and actions of history to accomplish the good and perfect purposes of God. There's this lower story, this earthly story of history being lived out in ancient Persia. And there's the upper story, God's story, the heavenly story of God accomplishing God's purposes through the lower story. But I'm starting to get ahead of myself just a little bit. Let me back up for a second. You remember that last week we learned about the 70 years of living in exile in Babylon for the Jewish people. And then a new empire and a new king overthrew the Babylonian empire. The Persian empire was on the rise and it was taking over both Assyria and Babylon. King Cyrus's Persian empire was huge. We're told it stretched from India all the way to Kush, which is the upper northern valley of the Nile River in Egypt. We also learned last week that King Cyrus declared when he came to the throne that it was okay for the Jews who wanted to return to their homeland of Israel to do so. He even blessed them and he sent them with some money to help rebuild the to rebuild Jerusalem and especially the temple in Jerusalem. He opened up the empire's treasury and he got out the four or 5,000 valuable gold and silver articles of worship 
that had been stolen by Babylon and sent them back with the people too. Now at this edict, the edict of Cyrus, lots of Jews did return to Israel. We're told that perhaps 40 to 50,000 of them, but not all of them. Many Jews decided to stay in Persia, and they probably had a lot of different reasons for doing that. For one, it was a 900-mile trip on foot or by donkey if you could afford one, and it was a dangerous journey along the way. And after 70 years and perhaps three or four generations having been born in Persia, lots of the Jews in Persia had never even been to Judah or Jerusalem. They'd only heard some stories about it. And besides, Judah and Jerusalem were still in shambles from the war with Babylon that resulted in their exile. The country, the city, had not been rebuilt in all these 70 years. And so some may not have wanted to go home and endure the hardship of having to rebuild this whole city, country. And besides, home to them now was Persia. Their homes were there. Their livelihoods were there. Most of them were doing pretty good in Persia. And so 50 years after that first group of exiles returned to Jerusalem, the majority of Israelites still remained scattered all throughout the Persian Empire. Many of them lived in the capital city of Susa, including a woman named Esther. Now Esther had probably been born in Persia, but her parents had died And so she was being raised by her righteous uncle, Mordecai. And in our story today, the year is 479 B.C. There is a new king that is sitting on the throne now, and his name is Xerxes. And he too rules over the entire Medo-Persian Empire. King Xerxes is throwing a party to end all parties. Scripture tells us this party lasted 180 days. 180 days. I've never been to a party that lasted three days. I can barely make it three hours at a party anymore. But six months, can you imagine? And during this time, he's proudly displaying all the wealth, all the splendor, all the power of his kingdom. Now, kings did this all the time as a precedent before going to war again. You see, this display proved that you had the resources to go to war and to win that war. And so Xerxes was planning at this time to go to war with Greece, which he did because he wanted to expand his empire even more. And his officials were probably using this six-month period to decide their strategy for the war. Now, at the end of this 180 days, the king gave a seven-day banquet for all of his officials. And we're told that wine was flowing in abundance, and his wife, Queen Vashti, was giving another banquet for all the women in the royal palace as well. And on the seventh day of the banquet, when the king is feeling pretty good, he sends his servant to go and fetch Queen Vashti. You see, he wanted to show off her beauty To his guests. But the queen refused the king's command, and so King Xerxes had Queen Vashti banished from his kingdom, and a search for a new queen to take her place was begun. Now, there were many beautiful women from all over the Persian Empire who were brought to the palace in Susa. 
And one of the beautiful women was Esther. And her beauty captured the attention of the king's official who was in charge of the king's harem, a eunuch by the name of Haggai. He gave Esther a special position of prestige in the harem. He gave her special beauty treatments and special food to eat. Now Esther had not revealed to anyone that she was one of the Jewesses living in exile in Persia because her cousin Mordecai had forbidden her from doing so. And so after 12 months of these beauty treatments and all the other preparations, it came time for Esther to be presented to King Xerxes. Now many other women had already been presented to him too, but the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the others, we're told. And so he had a royal crown placed upon her head, and he made her his new queen. Now Mordecai is very happy for his cousin when he hears the news, and news of her new position reached him while he was sitting in the city gate in Susa. And while he was there, he overheard two of the king's officials who were plotting to assassinate the king. And so he sent word to Esther, who sent word to the king, and she gave Mordecai credit for foiling this plot. Well, the men were arrested, and they were hanged on the gallows, and their vicious plan was averted. Now, if that isn't enough drama and interest for you, let's add a little more intrigue and drama to the mix. You see, there's this man named Haman, and he has risen to a high position of authority in the king's government. And he hates the Jews. Now, we're not told exactly why that is, but we are told that he is the offspring of King Agog, who was king of the Amalekites way many years before. You'll recall from our reading in this Bible reading plan that the Amalekites had given the Jews lots of trouble when they had tried to enter into the promised land. They were one of the nations trying to keep them out. And way back in our 10th week of the story, we read about God asking King Saul to completely wipe out the Amalekite people because they were extremely evil. And Saul did wipe out all the people except for one. He let King Agog live, which very much displeased God. And so God regretted ever having made Saul king of Israel because of his disobedience. And so now all these years later, King Agog's descendant, Haman, is back at it again, carrying a huge grudge against God's people. And not only did Haman hate God's people in general, he hated Mordecai specifically because Mordecai would not bow down to him. He wouldn't kneel in his presence. Haman had been elevated to second in the command in all of Persia, and all the other Persian officials bowed down to him. But Mordecai would not bow because only God deserved that. And Haman knew that Mordecai was a Jew. And so Haman used his influence to get King Xerxes to sign an irrevocable decree to have all the Jews in the whole empire executed on one day. 
And the people throughout the 127 provinces of the Persian Empire were given permission to kill a Jewish family and to take all of their possessions legally. And the date for this horrible event is set to happen 11 months after the king signed the decree. Now, what Haman does not know is that King Xerxes' queen is Jewish. And so three months after Xerxes had signed the decree, Mordecai sends word to Queen Esther that she has to go before the king and plead for mercy for her people before it's too late. But she reminds her cousin that it's not going to be that easy. I'm reading from Esther chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. You see, anyone who wanted to speak to the king couldn't just drop by. You couldn't even schedule an appointment to try and get on his calendar. You had to be summoned by the king first. And this rule applied to absolutely everyone, even his wife, the queen. And if you entered into the king's presence without being summoned, you were punished severely. You were punished by death. Now, I suppose you could take your chances and maybe he would receive you if he was in a good mood or, you know, in a good whatever. You could go there and you could wait outside the court or the throne room. And if you could catch his attention and he wanted to see you, he would hold out his gold scepter to you. It's ironic, I think, that Queen Vashti had been banished from the palace for refusing to go see the king. And now Queen Esther is being asked to risk losing her life for going to see the king unsummoned. I hope you can see how Esther was in a place of great opportunity. You see, there's a decree in place to exterminate all of the Jews living in Persia. They are a part of God's chosen people. And Esther finds herself still living in this land, as does her cousin Mordecai, because not all of the Jews had returned home to Judah and Jerusalem. The country that Esther lives in gives her one very important opportunity which cannot be overstated. And to top all of that off, 
she's been given an opportunity to live in the palace. And when you think about it, she's been given an opportunity to live a pretty cushy lifestyle, hasn't she? Beauty treatments all the time, sumptuous foods to eat, palace living. It's kind of like she's living in the lifestyles of the rich and famous, isn't she? And yet, even with all of these things at her disposal, she still listens intently to her cousin. She respects him. She follows the sage advice that he gives to her. Mordecai tells Esther that she has been put in the place that she is in for a reason, that it's not by chance, it is not an accident. Mordecai believes that God has put her in this position for the very purpose of saving the Jews from extermination. She's been put in this place of opportunity for just such a time as this. Well, Esther vacillates a little bit. She points out that she can't just go and see the king, and she points out that she hasn't been summoned to do so in more than 30 days, and so maybe she's not very high on the king's priority list right now. And so Mordecai tells Esther that she will not be protected from the edict just because she lives in the palace. I mean, the edict came from the palace, so she has to act. Esther has a big decision to make, and she makes a good one. She recognizes the opportunity that she has been given, and she decides to use her influence. She starts by coming up with a plan. She instructs Mordecai to have every Jew who lives in the city of Susa to fast for three days. They're not to eat or drink anything. And she and her attendants, she says, are going to do the same thing. Now, fasting is an act of petition to God. It's a response to a grievous situation like this edict that's been proclaimed when one believes that God absolutely is going to have to act. Esther is relying on God, but she is also coming into her own. Up to this point in time, her her situation has been a pretty precarious one, one of still being on the outside, even though she is clearly an insider, right? I mean, for example, she lives in the palace, but she can't even see the king on her own if she wants to. And up to this time, she has been an object of beauty, living to please other people, mostly the king, on his whim. Up to this point, she has been taking orders, And now she begins to give some orders. She becomes active, not passive. She becomes a risk taker. And she tells Mordecai, and Mordecai hurries to go and carry out her orders for the fast. And after three days of fasting, Esther puts on her royal robes and she stands in the inner court of the palace. The king is sitting on his throne, and when he looked up, he saw Esther standing there. And he extended the golden scepter, and she entered, and she touched the tip of the scepter. The king asked her what she wanted, what request she wanted to make of him. He said that he was willing to give her up to half of his kingdom. And it is then that Esther puts step two of her influential plan into action. You see, she invited King Xerxes and just one other guest, One other guest, 
the evil Haman, to join her for a banquet the following evening. And so they go to this banquet, and the king again asks her what her request is. And instead of telling him, she invites the king and Haman to another banquet the next night. And it is then that she says she will answer the king's question. Well, Haman is thrilled to be getting this much attention from the king and queen, right? He is in a great mood, a jovial mood, that is until he's walking on his way home and he sees Mordecai in the street. And immediately the hatred for him boils up inside of him so much so that his good mood evaporates. He decides to build a gallows 75 feet high on which he plans to ask the king to have Mordecai hanged. Well, meanwhile, that same night, the king can't sleep. You ever have one of those nights where you toss and you turn and you can't sleep? And so the king asks one of his servants to bring a history book with stories about the empire brought up from the, from the palace library. And the servant reads the story about the time when Mordecai thwarted the plot to assassinate the king. And King Xerxes asks his servant what kind of honor or reward they had given Mordecai to thank him. And the servant looks in page after page and he can't find where they ever did anything to honor Mordecai. And so the very next morning, the king is talking with Haman. And before Haman even gets a chance to make his request to have Mordecai hanged, the king says to Haman, suppose there is someone who is really important. What do you think we should do to honor them? And Haman, whose ego is still so big, I'm so surprised he even fit into the palace, he supposes that the king is talking about honoring him. And so he says, well, I think a royal robe should be taken from your closet and put on this man. And this a royal horse from your stable should be given and he should ride upon it. It should have a royal crest on the, on the horse. And, and another high standing official should lead this man through the whole city proclaiming this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And then in a wonderfully delicious twist of fate, King Xerxes tells Haman to go and do that very thing for Mordecai. <laughs> and of course he has to. It's an order from the king. He can't disobey it. And so he does this and he's humiliated and he rushes home full of grief and anger and humiliation. But it's time for the second banquet. And immediately one of the king's servants comes to uh, Haman's house gets him and takes him to the, set, to the banquet that Queen Esther is throwing. And it is there that Esther reveals to the king that there is a plot to destroy her and her people. And that the man behind the plot is Haman. And the king is furious. And he gives an order for Haman to be hanged on the very same gallows that he had erected to hang Mordecai. Well, the king's decree to destroy the Jews is rescinded, and as a result of Esther's influence, the Jews were saved. And even to this very day, the Jews still commemorate this event in a celebration called the Feast of Purim. 
It's a jovial holiday, one of the most celebratory that the Jews have. It usually falls in our month of March or April, and it's celebrated with lots of food. I mean, why not? Think of all the banquets that are held in this story, right? And when you go to the synagogue on Purim, the scroll of the story of Esther is read. And because it says in that scroll that Haman's name was blotted out of the records of Persia, all 54 times his name is read in that scroll, the people in the synagogue stomp their feet and they yell at the top of their lungs and they heckle and they even bring noisemaker to drown out his name from ever being heard again. Now, we may not celebrate the Feast of Purim as an outcome of the story of Esther, but there are definitely some outcomes, some responses to this story that are incumbent upon us. First, you have to realize that like Esther, you are in the position that you are in for just such a time as this. That God appointed this exact time in history and this exact place for you to live Psalm 139, verse 16 says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. My friend, you are alive at this time in history in the United States of America, in Cincinnati, Ohio, in Anderson Township and its environs for just such a time as this. Now, some of you are students, some are teachers. Some are administrators in schools that are much harder, much darker places, much more difficult places to be than when I used to be in school. There are Hamans everywhere, and you can stand up for all of the people that no one else will stand up for. The girl who's different, the boy who eats lunch alone, the one that everyone makes fun of. Many of you are parents or grandparents, even a few great-grandparents, and you have so much influence on the children that you're raising, even on their friends who come around to your house. You can pour your faith in Jesus into them so that they will have Christ as their solid rock on which to stand. You can teach them right from wrong. You can teach them God's laws and God's ways. You have great influence over your kids and grandkids, and you can replace all of that other negative influences out there with the positive God-honoring influences. Your influence will determine the trajectory of their lives. You also have influence at work. Do you use honest weights and measures? Do you act with integrity? Do you speak with truth? Do you follow through on your commitments even when they are hard to follow through on? My friend, you are here for just such a time as this. Think about these questions. What are you passionate about? What do you want to live for? What difference do you want to make in this world? Are you passionate about caring for the natural world which God created and which he made us the caretakers of? Are you passionate about the foreigner, the sojourner, the immigrant, the widow, the orphan? Are you passionate for the lost? Are you passionate for people who have not yet met Jesus as their Lord and Savior? My friend, you have so much influence in this world. Maybe not the whole world, but do you know what? You have influence in your corner of the world, and that's 
what God calls you to influence. You see, when we are really passionate about something or someone, we're willing to sacrifice, aren't we? We're willing to risk. We're sometimes even willing to lay down our own lives. What are you willing to die for? Esther was willing to risk her life to save her people. She sought the Lord through fasting and prayer. She did what she had control over, and then she trusted the rest to God. If the king had not held out his golden scepter, she would have died. But she was willing to say, if I perish, I perish. Speaking up and speaking out does not always make us popular. In fact, it can put us at great risk. Speaking out about injustice because of our faith in Christ may cause us to lose friends. It may cause us to lose face in some people's eyes. Perhaps it may even cause us to lose a job. And it's worth reminding ourselves that in some parts of our world, even today, speaking up for Christ is still a life and death situation. But God calls us to speak up and to speak out. We are to defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked, Psalm 82. My friends, God is always at work in this world, even when we don't see him at work explicitly. God works through the good, the bad, and the ugly situations in our world, and we are co-workers with God. Yes, God is in control, and he is working all things together for our good. And each one of us is an instrument in God's hand. And so ask yourself these questions today. What can I do today, this very day, to further God's kingdom around me? What am I doing that will really make a difference in the light of eternity? How am I investing in other people that will make a difference even after I'm dead and gone? What am I passionate about? What am I willing to die for? Fast. Pray. Seek God's will. Learn from Esther's example. And then, step out in faith. Take a stand. Be courageous. Will you pray with me? Oh God, we thank you for your servant, Esther, and for her courage and her willingness to influence the situations of her time and place. Like her, God, you call us to be agents, instruments of your, in your hand, in our time, and in our place. Keep our eyes and ears and hearts and minds open so that we can see the opportunity we have. And then use us, God, to influence the world around us, the people around us, so that they are drawn closer to you and we create your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Most of all, we thank you for Jesus, for his willingness, his passion that teaches us what to live for. And of course, his passion that made him willing to die for us. May we die to ourselves so that we can live for Christ and use us, we pray. pray. 
in his strong and powerful name. And all God's people said, Amen.